Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Tim Norton talks about digital rights. But first up, here's the news about CubeSats and facial recognition. Space is for sadism. The Australian Federal Government has announced that it will pay the University of New South Wales Canberra $10 million to build CubeSats, small satellites, to track the boats of people fleeing war and persecution, so that the government can target them sooner. The CubeSat is the first of three little satellites that the University of New South Wales Canberra is building in collaboration with the Royal Australian Air Force. The first CubeSat is the size of a loaf of bread and weighs 4 kilograms. It's due to launch in 2018. Two larger satellites are due to be completed by the university in 2019. The CubeSats will be equipped with telescopes, cameras and radio receivers to discover and track boats and ships. They will be launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. What about science? Agriculture? Bushfires, floods, emergency rescue. Let's hope the government's vision for space will be revealed as more than just military applications. Face stalking. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced that he's instructed state governments to hand over copies of their databases of driver's license photographs to be incorporated into the Australian Customs Passport Face Recognition System. The government's comic book supervillain term for face-based surveillance is the capability. The face recognition passport system was introduced to make it faster for people to be processed at international airports. The expanded customs face recognition database will be used by Australian Federal Police to search for suspects. New South Wales Police have been photographing people attending licensed protest. Too bad if you were just passing the protest and ended up on the watch list. The databases are compatible with the private CCTV systems used by shopkeepers, pubs and nightclubs. So, passing the protests might get you banned from the club. Will your face be combined with census information identifying your religious and political views? The new database will use the same NEC NeoFace real-time face recognition system that's also being used in the US, Canada, New Zealand and the UK, the Five Eyes Surveillance Alliance. The NEC website describes NeoFace as surveillance enhanced. The new iPhone can be unlocked with your face. Other phones are sure to follow Apple's lead. The Five Eyes governments will be able to unlock your phone at will and imprison you if the computer mistakes you for somebody else. Either way, they'll be watching you. Do you know which security technology is behind the scenes? 
the world's best face recognition technology. From NEC, authenticates faces in an instant. NEC helps safeguard people, businesses, and society. Orchestrating a brighter world. NEC. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, face recognition and your digital rights. Tim Singleton-Norton is chair of Digital Rights Watch. I spoke to him by phone, and there's some odd digital echo in the first 90 seconds, but it does clear up. I began by asking him, the government has announced that they'll take our driver's license photos and put them into a national database for face recognition. What does this mean for our civil rights? Look, it's an incredibly worrying step. We've seen this government pushing for a whole bunch of issues that impose on the privacy of Australians. So we've had mandatory data retention, we've had website blocking legislation, and now to go to the extent of actually expanding the spying of citizens and actually putting into facial recognition of a mass level, at a national level, it's an incredible overreach into the privacy of everyday Australians. So it's something that we're incredibly worried about. It sets a dangerous precedent for what this data could be used for. And I think the worrying thing is the lack of transparency and oversight. There has been very little debate, particularly in the parliamentary level, about what happens to this data, how it's being processed, how it's being used, who has access to it. All of those are questions that the public have a right to understand. So it's, it's part and parcel. It's, it's the output and the kind of end result of what we end up with. But it's also about the process, about how we get there and whether that's a democratic process. And isn't it a basic privacy principle that you need to give consent to what your data is being used for at the time it's being collected? You, you are told this is what it's used for and it can't be used for anything that you're not told about without your further consent. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where it's been pushed through. Unfortunately, for it to be put on the agenda of a COAG meeting so late in the day and then put under the guise of national security, it makes it very hard for those state premiers to push back. The spectre of national security is often used as an excuse for why we need to give up some civil liberties. But you're, very, you're right. At the base level, we enter into a, an agreement with the government when we decide to hand over personal information in return for a service. So in this... I have agreed to give over my likeness, my photographic likeness, my my details, my gender, a lot of these details, in order to have the recognition and approval to drive a car. That's the agreement that I entered into. For that to now be taken away and put into a nebulous database with questionable security practices that will then be used to protect me with no real definition of what that protection is and who from. That's not the uh, agreement that I entered into. So that's not the kind of style of how we want a government particularly, but any institution or any organisation to be treating privacy. Have they made any sort of case of how this would make things better than they already are? I think the main argument that's been put forward is that more data and more information will enable more things to, be, to come to light. And there is some logic in that argument. The more information at your disposal, the better your eventual outcome could be. One of the problems is that we're not equipped to actually be able to manage these the scale of this kind of data. There's no way that 
people power can actually get through all of it and actually come to agreements on what it means and how we look at it. And so that means we have to put in place algorithms. And unfortunately, algorithms are not at any kind of sophisticated level to be able to do this work without human intervention. There's a whole bunch of examples in the US where algorithms that have been put in place in national security or policing environments have learned to be racist. So we can't trust the computers and we don't have the manpower to actually be able to go through the massive troves of data and understand what it means. And that means that you will get false positives and you will get profiling and you will get assumptions based on precedence and those precedents, it's a, it's a constant loop scenario. And that's one of the problems there. And this government hasn't done very well with using algorithms so far. No. My understanding is they don't seem to do computers well. <laughs> no. And I mean, I, I will give, you know, Malcolm Turnbull is obviously, his background is in technology. He does, out of all of our leaders, speak most credibly about the understanding of the technological limitations. But that said, what he's actually proposing to use these for no one has any trust in the ability for it to actually deliver in this way. We've seen breaches of data, so clearly they can't hold the security of data sources, and that's come out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, it's come out of Centrelink, it's come out of Medicare, um, it's come out of the border security forces. There's countless examples where we haven't been able to protect that data. And then we've also rammed through legislation with very little parliamentary oversight, if at all, which have meant that when mandatory data retention came into effect, there was a staggering, I think it was somewhere up in the 40 or 50 different agencies that had access to that data, including somewhere as ridiculous as Greyhounds Australia and the RSPCA. Now, granted, that's been whittled down now, that's been retroactively addressed, but it should never have been the case in the first place. We should have actually looked at, is there a credible need for law enforcement to have access to increased data? Now, if the answer is yes, then we need judicial oversight to ensure that that data is not misused and we need proper security protocols to make sure it's protected. Neither of those two things have been applied here. And they started with passports, I understand. Yeah, so we do have a facial recognition biometric system and that was put in place for ease's sake. So when you go through an airport and you want you opt to go through the electronic barriers, all you have to do is scan your passport, it reads the chip, you look at the camera, it cross-references your photo, approves your travel, or lets you go through. Now, there is a very valid element to ease for flowing through airports, for the ease of the traveller, all those sort of things. One of our concerns is that this is scope creep. It is expanding it for no real reason. And then we also have to take into account that Australia is in the middle of a agreement with five other countries, uh, with the Five Eyes governments, in that anything that our security forces pick up about our own citizenry is automatically given access to Canada, the US, the UK and New Zealand. And those Five Eyes form a very massive global spying operation. So it's not just about whether we trust our Australian government, but do we trust the Trump administration? And do we trump the May administration in the UK? There's big, big implications for what's happening to Australian citizens' private data and where it's been going and who's using it for what. And what can go wrong with these false positives with face recognition? So there's a lot, essentially. I mean, when you're trusting an algorithm that can then spit out the information, 
you need to, if you choose to go down that path and that algorithm gives you even the first step in where you want to go with your policing or the information and the insights that you want to learn, if that's the choice that we're going to make in our policing, then we need to make sure there are checks and balances to make sure that we don't act on it before checking the veracity of that source. We could, you know, be pulled up. I could look very similar to someone who is a threat. Now, because the facial recognition assumes that I am that person, cross-references a bunch of different data and decides that, yes, I am, then immediately I could be arrested without charge and held for you know, a minimum of 7 to 14 days with my family not knowing where I am. Now, at the end, they could come out and say, sorry about that, we got that wrong. But that doesn't take the, that, that uh, freedom away. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that's quite scary when what's been put on the table here is not just the profiling of facial recognition and the trust in an algorithmic service, but it's also about pushing the boundaries on this you know, innocent until proven guilty, which is the basis of our legal system. That's been now turned on its head with most states and ter territories agreeing to expand the time limit before you can be charged. And that's a worrying combination. Haven't they also reduced the age to 10 years old? Yeah. They want to be able to imprison children without charge now, and presumably they'll get them by facial recognition. Yeah, I mean, and I, I must admit I haven't gone into the detail of how the facial recognition services work when you reduce the age range. I have read somewhere that it is a lot harder. The younger that a person becomes, the more generic our characteristics become because we are still ageing and forming our own kind of identities at a physical level anyway. But yes, there's a, there's a huge problem there about the idea of the protection and care of children. And I am curious to see what Australia's ch children's commissioners and the various guardians will actually have to say about that. Because on the one hand, you've got uh, parental responsibility, but you've also got a guardian responsibility of the state. So if we're now butting up against those, where we're saying that we're okay with the idea of detaining underage children, but we also acknowledge we have a duty of care towards them, we, we might find ourselves in a very difficult situation. And I understand the Immigration Department is also using face recognition with asylum seekers. In fact, people in general. I've heard of a case of, well, a man who claims to be Aboriginal who's in an immigration prison because the face recognition software says he's Fijian. Wow. Okay. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> Terrifying. I can, I can send you that one through. Apparently he's been arrested several times. Eventually he gets released. The latest time they put him in immigration prison, the elders have vouched for him. Wow. But he's got a problem that, one, he's an islander, and two, he's of the stolen generation, which makes it harder to prove right. that he's indigenous. But there's no evidence that he's Fijian outside of the face recognition. Yeah. So I think these are the sort of false positives that are worrying. I mean, yes, I have heard that on the, on the computerization side of things, we do know that the Immigration Department has outsourced the security risk assessments of detainees in immigration facilities. So there's a computer that actually analyzes their, their activities and what they're saying and their background, and it spits out a determination as to how much of a risk they are to their safety, to the safety of other inmates and the safety of employees. And this whole thing is being put forward as in uh, time and energy and cost saving. But we have no idea how this tool works. And it's one thing to trust a member of the Border Force, you know, a member of Border Force to actually make an assessment 
based on their training, their expertise, their understanding, and the fact that they're there. They're a human being looking at the situation. That's something that we do employ people into, into positions of trust. But then to trust a computer, to spit out an understanding of, of the potential future actions of an individual is a terrifying concept. And so it's something that we need to actually address. Again, if we choose to use these tools, that's one thing. But we need a debate. We need the full disclosure of how these things work. We need government and civil society and nonprofits and activists and ad advocates to come together and actually debate these things, to come up, because they are moral and ethical issues as much as they are operational. Absolutely. So you're getting basically pre-crime where you're identifying people who the computer says may be at risk of committing a crime in the future, and then you can imprison them without charge. Yeah. And I mean, we have elements of that where we do allow for that flexibility in policing. You know, we do trust our police force to sometimes operate on hunches and sometimes operate on their own research and their own understanding of how a community works or the kind of precursors to crime that are, are proven to be obvious. What we don't allow as a society is racial profiling, gender profiling, socioeconomic profiling. And unfortunately, when we're talking about algorithms, they're not that complex. They will not be able to make the same determinations that a human can. And if you put me in that situation where I would much rather trust a human police officer to be looking out for me, which is their job to protect the community, than I would a police computer. And what happens when you hook this up to our closed circuit TV network around the city? Yeah, so I'm not sure whether we're at that stage yet. I mean, it is an, an obvious kind of pathway and something that has happened in the UK. GCHQ, the UK's equivalent of ASIO, does have access to one of the most diverse and, and wide-ranging CCTV programs in the world. Like, oh, I think it's every, every square foot of London is covered in some way. Now, we are going that way here. Brisbane has seen a huge increase in CCTV in the last couple of years, is just one example. And it would be very easy for them to link these things up. I think this conversation that Turnbull's had at the COAG level is the first step towards that inevitability because those CCTV operations are largely state-based operations. So start with things that seem innocuous, like handing over the photo database of the state license registrations, and then move into other areas. And you see you know, just a little bit more and just a little bit more and before you know it, every inch of Australia is actually being watched and recorded and analysed by a government on its citizenry. And we do want the law enforcement to have the tools available to be able to do their job, but there has to be a debate at least and then a cost analysis of the impact on everyday Australians' privacy. And isn't it the same NeoFace software that they're using in Australia as they're using to surveil in UK? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure on the detail of what they're proposing to use. I was looking it up. Apparently, it's the NEC NeoFace software, and it's been used in Britain for the last three, four years, and in America as well. Right. Well, that would make sense again. I mean, um, well, I don't like it, but um, the idea of being able to simulcast and actually share that information across the five eyes. So that would make perfect sense as to why they'd be using the same system. Except that they keep announcing and then retracting that they've got their first arrest 
using the system over the last three years. So right. apparently it's not very successful in actually policing. <laughs> well, again, this is the problem here. I mean, you know, you it, it seems like technological advances are always touted as being able to save money or to, you know, save time or to take a human out of the equation because humans are expensive. But there are certain parts of our society where we want humans involved. You know, no one would ever get to the stage of proposing that we could computerize and outsource our judicial system. We would not be okay with the idea of a computer being a judge. But essentially what we're asking people to do here is a computer could be an intelligence officer. A computer could be a police information officer. And I'm not okay with that. Doesn't sound good to me. It's the same thing. My understanding is also that the federal government has legislation to automate decisions in almost every government department, starting out with human services, but going on to the other departments. Isn't that the same sort of replacing people with simple algorithms? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's been huge uproar, of course, about things like the wait times to access Centrelink, about the computerization and linking of systems under MyGov, about some of the complete failure of being able to roll out the census. When you start trying to automate things, they are incredibly complex systems. And if the public is not entirely on board with that analysis, if it will be a good thing or a bad thing, then these things are going to fail. They're always going to fail, not just on a technological level, but on how people are willing to interact with them. Isn't there also a tendency of public officials to trust what the computer tells them? So if the computer says you're guilty and you don't know why the computer says that they're guilty, aren't they more likely to just go, well, the computer must be right? Yeah, and this is why we need that oversight. This is why we actually need to have human intervention. You know, we've, we've had instances in the past, if you take immigration, for example, there's a reason that we had the precedent of having people have the right of reply. You know, there is, there is the application to seek asylum. There is what you put forward. There is the eventual result, which may or may not include automatic algorithms as part of in determining things, and increasingly it does so. But the important thing there is, there is then a right of reply. And what this government is doing is actually pulling that away. They have taken away the access to legal rights. They've taken the access away to legal counsel. They've taken, even in some instances, they've taken away the right to reply. You know, if you seek asylum and you do so in a way that is deemed wrong, then you are given a determination and that is it. That is final. That's not the democratic way of dealing with something. You must give people the right of reply. And so in these instances, if we have computers deciding on an outcome and no human intervention checking that outcome from the authorities level and then no ability for us to understand and see how that algorithm works and then have a right of reply, that's not a democratic way of coming to a decision. If they imprison you without charge under suspicion of terrorism and then release you two weeks later, you're also not allowed to tell anyone where you were for two weeks. Is that still the case? I believe so, yeah. And again, these sort of, you know, looping back and closing all those loopholes to make sure that these things don't come out. If, if we wanted to throw the government's argument back at them, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. So therefore, why do we have these systems that are wrapped up in secrecy and wrapped up in you can't access the underlying code or the algorithm or the determination? You can't take part in the discussion of why we need these things and how they roll them out. 
Well, then that argument needs to be applied to government as well. Governments are only there to serve its citizenry. And if the citizenry doesn't have the right to understand why and how they're governing, they're not doing a very good job. And if people want to find out more about their digital rights, what should they do? So I would encourage people to have a look at my own organisation, Digital Rights Watch, but there are many others that are working in this space. The Electronic Frontiers Australia, Crypto Australia, the Australian Privacy Foundation. There's quite a lot, and it's a bit sad that there is an increasing level of advocacy in this area because we can see private rights being invaded upon. But there are ways that pushing back and being more aware of what privacy is being invaded and how and pushing back on governments and actually contacting their MPs and saying, I'm not okay with this, I want more information, you represent me and I want you to know that I'm, I'm watching you just as much as you're watching me and have that open dialogue. It's the only way that we're actually going to progress the issue. Well, Tim, thank you so much. That's all right. That was Tim Singleton-Norton, Chair of Digital Rights Watch, talking about your online privacy rights and face recognition. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the Diffusion website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.